may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? <clears throat> Our great God and Heavenly Father, I pray now that through your word, you would give us and grant us spiritual life that every person, every soul in this room might truly see, that we would understand and that we would know you. And if any are here, Lord, that are but once born, would you give to them new life, second birth, new birth unto eternity. Do in us, Lord, what we cannot do ourselves. Open our eyes, unclog our ears, give us new hearts, I pray. Lord, none of us are here by accident, and so I pray that you would accomplish your good, sovereign purposes in us and through us and for us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. My friend Eric is probably one of the smartest guys I know. I met him when I was at Biola University several decades ago. We lived together with several other guys for parts of three years, and then after we graduated, we all lived in the same house together. One Saturday morning, I got some groceries, came back into the back door of the house that we rented, and I heard several voices from the front door. And so I just kind of began to put my groceries away, soon discovered that that was definitely Eric's voice, and it was two other uh, voices that they happened to be Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I was just putting groceries away, overhearing a little bit of their conversation, but I knew enough at some point that my friend Eric would bring up the Arian heresy of the 4th century and the absence of a little Greek article before the word God in John chapter 1. That's essentially where Jehovah's Witness, where they go wrong, right there. And so sure enough, Eric did this, and by this point, another one of my roommates came in the back door, and then both of us are kind of leaning against the kitchen wall, just listening to what's going down. This is now a 45-minute conversation. You might even call it a friendly debate. And about an hour in, a third Jehovah's Witness came to the door, and he joined in. And my friend Eric didn't need our help, but all three Jehovah's Witnesses left after about an hour and a half. They promised that they would be back the following Saturday, and they never came back. <laughs> and so my roommates and I didn't know like, should we give Eric just a big bro hug? Do we buy him a cigar? Do we just tell him we're thankful we're on the same team? And we opted for that third option. But it was like a master class in evangelism, at least in that sense, in, in, in like an hour and a half. Eric's not only very intelligent, but he's also very godly. So he listened carefully to the Jehovah's Witnesses' claims. He didn't interrupt them. He didn't try to one-up them. He answered their objections really graciously, with candor. He humbly but boldly pressed forward the true gospel. He highlighted the differences between what they believe, what they claim to be true, and what the Bible actually says, what Christians believe. And so Eric's intention was, was not to win an argument, though he did. It was simply, as the Apostle Paul says, to set forth the truth plainly, 2 Corinthians 4.2. To, to set forth the truth plainly to a couple guys who thought they knew the truth, but didn't. And I remember thinking weeks, months, well, and here we are decades after that. How do I do that? I want to be able to do that. 
graciously, humbly, but boldly. Set forth the truth plainly. Correct error as it's there. And in all things, point people to Jesus Christ, just like my friend Eric did on that Saturday. Now, I wonder how that story, and it's all true, I wonder how that connects with you this morning. Like, what are you thinking right about now? I hope when you hear a story like that, you're encouraged to, to say, you know, I, I want that kind of boldness, Lord. Work in me that kind of boldness. I hope it leads you to deeper faith, even to greater joy in Christ. But truthfully, some of you maybe are thinking about the last time that you opened your mouth and attempted to share your faith. And it did not maybe go exactly like that. Maybe not even close. Perhaps you opened up your mouth and not a lot of words came out. Or maybe words did come out, but it's words that two hours later when you're kind of debriefing mentally that conversation, you think, why didn't I say that? I wish I would have said that. I can't believe I missed that. You might even question if something is maybe wrong with you or wrong with your faith. Maybe you missed something because when you try to have gospel conversations, spiritual conversations with your children or your mom or your dad or a neighbor or a brother or sister or a friend, usually it's met with kind of blank stares or a kind of do not disturb me vibe. Now I know that there, in fact, there are at least a couple of you here for whom getting into conversations like that, like my friend Eric, that's routine for you. That's actually more normal for you. And you talk about Jesus anywhere and ever, and you're wondering what's wrong with everybody else. In fact, I know that one of you here several years ago shared the gospel with Ozzy Osbourne at a hotel in Hawaii. I mean, Ozzy needs Jesus too. He definitely needs Jesus. So if evangelism is one of your strengths, praise God for you. Be kind to the rest of us who maybe are not quite like you, and maybe we need a little bit more of your boldness. Church, this morning we're, we're finishing our short series here, working through our church mission statement, really answering that question, why do we exist as a church? What, what's the DNA? Why do we do the things we do? And so our focus this morning is on evangelism. And admittedly, this is an important area for us. It's, it's also an important area of growth for us as a church. When the elders met in mid-December to go over our church budget for this next year, uh, we realized that we didn't have any money in the church budget solely dedicated to evangelism. And so now we do. And so it's a start. It's a beginning. It's nowhere near the end. But yes, we are grateful as a local church. And if you were here in the members meeting, you, you heard me say that. But we're grateful as a local church to support uh, good gospel work, to financially support ministries and organizations that are doing great gospel work that are pressing the gospel into some very, very hard situations, some very, very hard circumstances. So Trevor just prayed for Path of Life. Uh, they're doing incredible work, wonderful work here right in Spokane. So it's, 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 a, it's a joy to be able to financially support them. Uh, I think of strong families, used to be called safe families. And in the weeks to come, you'll hear more about that. But again, they they, their ministry is basically 90% is to single women who need help caring for their children, whether that's for four hours or it could be for six months. And so we're grateful to, to give money to support that ministry and to encourage them. Those are just two of just a couple examples where just as a local church, yes, that's, that's part of our missions giving. It's part of how we want the gospel to go forward. But we're, we're just getting started. So would you pray for us 
as elders, as we think about practical needs right here in our neighborhood, what does that look like? What, is it, what does it look like to really love our neighbors? These are the sorts of things that we have time and energy that we want to think about as a local church. You know, when we think about new opportunities that the Lord might give us to share the gospel, to speak about Christ, we're really only limited by our lack of imagination. We have a sovereign God. We have His infallible Word. We have the omnipotent Holy Spirit at work in our lives, flowing in us and out of us. And uh, we have money. And I'm looking at some very creative people. So let's pray some bold prayers, shall we? In the weeks and months ahead, about how the Lord might want to use us to really be a blessing to the people around us. There are there are two main ways that we can tackle this very broad subject of evangelism. One way is for me to tell you everything that the Bible says about evangelism all in one sermon and hope that you're still paying attention months down the road. Some of you will give birth before that sermon is over. So I'm not going to do that. The Bible actually speaks a lot about evangelism, about sharing our faith. The, the, the Bible speaks a whole lot about what practical godliness actually looks like when we live in an ungodly world. It's full of passages and stories that tell us how we are to conduct ourselves as disciples of Jesus in a world that doesn't love Jesus. So I, I can't tell you all of that in one sermon. The other main way to approach this topic of evangelism is admittedly much simpler, much more pragmatic. Let's just skip the biblical treatise on evangelism. There's no time to waste. Everybody needs Jesus. Let's get right down to work. Get to it. That's kind of the Christian version of Nike's just do it. Just do it, please. Please talk to somebody about Jesus this week. And there's probably that's probably closely followed with a little bit of a guilt trip. So I'm not going to do that. I'm actually hoping to land somewhere in the middle this morning, and I want to look at gospel-centered evangelism by actually rooting it in a text that, well, it may not be, or you may not consider that to be a primary text on evangelism, but I trust in about 30 minutes that you will see that it actually is. One of the reasons I love this text here from 1 Peter chapter 2 is because it highlights a very important truth that is often overlooked when we think about sharing our faith, when we think about evangelism, it's easy to skip to the how-tos. We want to know what's, what's the latest and greatest technique. What, what should I say? What should I not say? How do I answer the skeptics? How do I use my backyard or my barbecue for evangelism? How do I make friends and be a good friend? And all of those brothers and sisters can be helpful questions. Some of them are necessary questions as we think about this broad topic and as we think about growing in this area of evangelism. And frankly, we have many gifted people here that I would encourage you to talk to. They will be of great help. Uh, get a coffee with them, and you're going to be farther ahead. But none of those how-to techniques in and of themselves will sustain our evangelistic efforts over the long haul. But this text tells us this morning what will. And it's not you being guilted into sharing your faith it's not me telling you how to anticipate every question that the skeptic might have. It's not your self-discipline. It's not even your superhuman willpower to just do hard things because Pastor Jeff said we're supposed to do it and it's important and it's in the Bible. 
No, the engine, brothers and sisters, that fuels our evangelism. The, the engine that fuels our, our, our motivates our sharing of our faith, yes, individually and as a local church, is grace. God's grace received in our hearts, and then God's grace unleashed to the people around us. And so what we find here in these two short verses in 1 Peter chapter 2 is how that happens, how God's grace received in our hearts turns us then outward and fuels our evangelism, fuels our missionary endeavors. Let me read that, those two verses again, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is writing here to a group of suffering Christians who are trying to figure out what it means to live a God-pleasing life when life is really hard, when earthly life is really hard. In other words, not unlike you and me and the life that we live, because every day there are challenges, aren't there? Situations that can be confusing and complicated and perplexing and sometimes downright hard, and we interact with people that maybe are hard to love, and there are all sorts of challenges that we face, to say nothing of maybe some bit of suffering or persecution that's coming our way simply because we name the name of Jesus. And so what these folks needed, and yes, what we need, what we need most then is the favor of God, the blessing of God to sustain us and to strengthen us. In other words, when life is really hard and life is complicated, what we need to know most is that God is for us, that he's not against us, that he hasn't abandoned us. And so that's why this theme of grace resounds throughout this very short book of 1 Peter. It's only five chapters, but it begins, Peter begins in chapter 1, verse 2, with a sincere plea that grace and peace be multiplied to you. And he ends this short letter in chapter 5, verse 12, by saying, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So one of Peter's main practical goals in this little book is to show us that the Christian life from beginning to end is all a work of God's grace. And in drawing our attention to the grace of God, Peter is not so subtly reminding us that to, to live life apart from God's grace, apart from his favor and his blessing, it's not only foolish, it's downright hopeless and miserable. Like, why would any of us want to do that? And as we think about the area of evangelism, willing yourself fueled by your own power, trying to do evangelism on your own efforts, depending on your own ability, is equally foolish and, yes, likely miserable. And I don't know about you, but I try and, try and stay away from things and doing things that I know will make me miserable. And that may be how, honestly, you might think about this whole area of evangelism and sharing your faith. It's hard. 
I don't know how to fit it in. I never know what to say. It's never gone well in the past. It's exhausting. Yeah, I don't really want to do it. Plus, I'm an introvert, so it's something that extroverts should just do. I'm just going to pray for them. So what does this grace have to do with evangelism? Well, here it is, brothers and sisters. The gospel of grace must first be worked in you before it will flow out of you. In other words, this precious gospel that we preach and teach and love and rejoice in, that has to land on your heart. That has to soften your heart. And when that happens, then it's going to flow out of you to the people around you. So notice here how Peter refers to us, the people of God, the community of the redeemed. In, in these two verses, we have some of the more profound and declarative descriptions of our identity, of, of who we are as men and women, boys and girls, our new identity in Christ. If I walked up to you this morning and said, look, I just have one question for you, humor me. Who are you? I mean, how would you answer that? Who are you? And some of you might say, well, I don't know. Who are you? And why are you asking me? And that's actually a good question. I've been asking that. You tell me who I am. I think most of us would respond by, by listing a whole series of important but secondary identity markers. So again, if you asked me, well, who are you, Brinkman? I'd be inclined to say, well, I'm, I'm a man. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. I'm a brother, an uncle, an employee, pickleball champion, resident alien. All those things are true, by the way. We, we have all these secondary identities, but here Peter calls us to our primary identity as God's people. So this is who we are right now, today, every day, if you are part of the community of the redeemed. Notice verse 9. Peter says, you are a chosen race. That word there is people. You are a chosen people. You think about chosen people. Peter calls our attention back to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 8. Now in that text, God reminded his people that they did not choose him, but that the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And so the obvious question there, and let's leave that Deuteronomy passage up for just a minute or two. The obvious question is, well, why? Why did the Lord choose them? Why did he choose you? Why did he choose us? Tim, was it because you had something good to offer to him? That's right. That is kind of laughable for all of us. Steph, was it because you, you offered him your resume? And he said, that's, that's good. I, I can use you. No. Why did he choose us? I mean, could, could we offer God something? No. Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number. In other words, not because you're powerful, it's not because you're great, than all the other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. Here's why. But it is because the Lord loves you. Why does the Lord love you? Because he loves you. Now, that's, that's humbling, I think, if we really consider that. Because what Deuteronomy passage there, what, what Peter's telling us here is that if you're a Christian today, it is because God first chose to love you. He put his steadfast love on you. And he called you to himself. And so this choosing, in other words, 
It's not owing to some bit of goodness in us or some merit in us or, like, why wouldn't God want to save us? We're generally good people. It's not like, that's not what happened for the Israelites. And it's not like you and I woke up one morning and said, well, I've tried this God and this God and here are all the gods that I can choose and I'm going to eliminate some of these. I don't really like that. Okay, I'm going to choose you, God. We don't do that. And the Israelites didn't do that. We ought to know ourselves well enough to know that in our natural state, our arrogance, our pride, our selfishness, kind of this, this me-first attitude, none of us would willingly, voluntarily choose God. Why? Because we want to be God. We want to act like God. We want to be in control. It is God who chose to love us. So how do we become a new race, as Peter says? How do we become a new people? 1 Peter 1, verse 3, by being born again by the mercies of God. How is one born again? How does one move from death to life? By the mercies of God. That's incredible, is it not? We are a chosen people. We are, Peter says, a royal priesthood. Priests offer spiritual sacrifices before God. And so every believer in Jesus Christ, all of us, the company of believers, are to reflect in the holiness of God and to offer up every part of our lives as living sacrifices before Him. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that your bodies even, your physical bodies, are offered up to God as a spiritual sacrifice. Elsewhere, Paul writes of offering up money and materials and possessions also as an act of worship to God. So we get the point that if you're a believer, if you are in Christ, all of us, the redeemed here, we now live, well, not for ourselves any longer, but every part of our lives displays the glory of Christ and the beauty of His grace for us. Because that's fundamentally who we are as new creatures in Christ. That's our identity. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Next, we are a holy nation. Isn't it interesting here that Peter doesn't say, you are a holy bunch of individuals, holy men, holy women. No, he says you're a holy nation. In other words, the emphasis here is on our corporate identity. So whatever we are, well, we are together. Whatever Peter says about us here, we, the church, we are corporately one entity, one body. We are a holy nation. Now, holy simply means set apart. So it, it has the sense of being set apart from the common, set apart from the ordinary, even the mundane. So we are set apart by God to be uncommon. Uncommon in how we live. Uncommon in how we conduct ourselves in marriage. Uncommon in how we think about sexuality and gender. Uncommon in how we care for and provide, not just for our own needs, but we want to see those around us. How can we meet those needs? Uncommon in forgiving those who have sinned against us. We're not holding grudges. Uncommon about how we ask for forgiveness when, yes, we have sinned against others. Uncommon, brothers and sisters, in how we love our enemies and pray 
for those who persecute us. The call to Christ is a call to live uncommonly. And it's an election year, folks. In an election year, we're going to have plenty of opportunities to be uncommon, to be holy in our language, in our social media posts, in our conversations with people. That can be really tempting. And we can get really fired up, can't we? Augustine wrote 1,600 years ago. I mean, he lived in a period of intense political anxiety and tension. He wrote a couple papers. They're called Judicial Authority. Uh, Read through those. There's some really good stuff in there. We got a quote here. Here's what Augustine said. There's some bad person you don't like. Don't let there be two. You criticize him and you join him. You swell the ranks that you're condemning. Are you trying to overcome evil with evil? To overcome hatred with hatred? Can't you hear the advice your Lord gave the Apostle Paul? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Some good words for us, isn't it? Augustine's not saying there, look, if, if you disagree, you can't say anything. Or you never should say anything. No, he's saying when you do open up your mouth, do so with grace and with charity. In other words, don't just add your voice to the thousands of voices and the noise and the rancor. That's what he's saying. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And again, in this year you might be thinking, here's what needs to happen in the United States of America. You might be right, I might be right, we both might be wrong. But I think we can agree that the United States of America needs God's people to be uncommon, to be holy in how we conduct ourselves. You are a holy nation. You are a people of his own possession. This is really the capstone identity marker from Peter. And, and kind of as if those other identity markers weren't enough to kind of, well, soften our hearts. In this way, Peter says, look, in Christ, you, Russ, Penny, Tim, everybody over here, you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you are his prized possession You belong to God. So by faith in Christ, all of the promises and the provision and the presence of God himself is yours. You have a spiritual home. Even more than that, you have a living redeemer who welcomes you into his family, who calls you by name, who offers you a seat at the table, and who will never turn his back on you. You belong to God. Now keep in mind here, I mean, I love Peter's boldness in that. Because he knows his audience, he's writing to a group of people who are suffering, who are weary, who are being pressed in and hemmed in. On every side, they're searching for what is true, what is real. Maybe not on us. And Peter says in verse 10, once you were not a people. But here's the good news. (laughs) Now you are. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. But now... You have received mercy. It would be really, really hard to find more comforting and soul-satisfying words than what we read here in verse 9. But the whole point, church, of verse 9, and this is where Peter's driving us, this is where I'm driving us this morning. The whole point of verse 9 is not for us to pat ourselves on the back and to leave here relieved, thanking God that we had the good fortune that he chose us. No, no, no. The point is that 
Our new identity in Christ is a gift of God's grace to us in Christ. None of us deserve it. We deserve eternal punishment. God's grace magnifies God. It exalts God, and it, yes, humbles us. So we don't look around and say, wow, this is great. How great are we? It's how great is our God. The gospel is amazing precisely because of how good God is to us. The beauty of the gospel is that God does not treat us as our sins deserve because we deserve eternal punishment. Jesus Christ is forsaken on the cross in our place. He receives God's perfect justice at the cross, thereby sinners like us can be cleansed and redeemed and adopted into his family. And all of that is undeserved. All of that is God's mercy and kindness and steadfast love and grace. And so it's that gospel, brothers and sisters, when understood, that gospel needs to impress our own hearts. Maybe it needs to soften your heart this morning so that it lands on you so that then, yes, it flows out of you. That's the whole point of all of us receiving this grace of the gospel, of you becoming a Christian, of having this new identity, it's not simply for you to be blessed. It's not simply for you to be transformed. It is so that you might tell others of this same grace that you have received. So what are we to do having received this incredible grace of God? Verse 9, we proclaim the excellencies of our Savior. What did he do? Who called us out of darkness and into his life. We proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. We speak about Jesus. We, some translations say we, we praise. It's the same thing. We, we speak of the beautiful things about Christ. We speak about the goodness of Christ and the perfections of Christ. We praise God for his mercy and his patience because we of all people know, if you are in Christ, that once we absolutely were in death darkness, now we have light. Once we were absolutely stone cold dead in our sins, now we are alive in Christ. Once we had no hope, now we have a hope beyond this earthly life, the hope of all eternity. Why? Because we have an excellent Savior. We have an excellent Savior. So we speak of him. We tell everybody about who he is. Now, if you're not convinced that you have an excellent Savior, then yeah, you're not, you're not really going to see evangelism as a big deal. Why would you want to do it? Let's leave it for others. Brothers and sisters, we, we have an excellent Savior, so we proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. We do that, yes, as we gather here corporately. We looked at that a few weeks ago through preaching and, yes, singing those two main pathways of grace. So when you walk into this building on a Sunday morning as we gather for worship, what are we doing? We are proclaiming the excellencies of our Savior. You're not here to listen to some guy. You're not here to listen to gifted musicians. We are here to worship, proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And then when we leave... Let's call that our scattered worship. Well, what do we do then? Well, the same thing we're doing here. We proclaim the excellencies 
of our Savior. We do that at work. Yep, it's the conversations around the water cooler. When we're walking with our walking friend, and when we're with our workout buddy, and around the supper table, and on and on it goes. We proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, yes, as we serve others, as we seek to meet needs through our actions, no doubt. But at some point, brothers and sisters, words need to be spoken. How will our friends, our neighbors, our family members, how will they know of Jesus Christ? How will they know of this good news? Trevor prayed for it. It's, it's wonderful when the Lord does this. Trevor and I did not talk beforehand. They need to be told. That's why Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes through hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Now perhaps some of you up to this point are saying, you know what, up, up to that point, the whole speaking thing, I was good. I get this whole evangelism thing. I'm going to pray about that, but I'm really going to leave that to the extroverts. They're going to do a far better job because they like to speak. I don't like to speak because I'm an introvert. Church, it's, it's not just the extroverts among us that are called to speak, that are called to speak of the excellencies of Jesus Christ. God's not looking here for a certain personality style, and if you happen to have the right mix, well, then you qualify, and everybody else is on team B. Not at all. Whether you're young or old, rich or poor, well-educated, less educated, man or woman, shy introvert or gregarious extrovert, if you have received the grace of Christ unto salvation, then you speak of that same grace to those around you. Yes, you proclaim the excellencies of him. And let me just say, if you are an extrovert, so maybe you use fewer words on an average day. I'm looking, at, I know some really godly extroverts among us here. You know, the truth is, you might use fewer words. But I know that your words will be Christ-exalting edifying, and they will give grace to the person who hears. Opening up your mouth for all of us, actually speaking the truth about Jesus, that can be hard. And even this whole topic of evangelism, it's, it's a super loaded word, isn't it? I mean, it is a great word to cause sincere Christians like us either just to tune out or to just be filled with guilt. Here's another thing I'm supposed to do. How do I fit that in? That's why I love how one pastor defines evangelism. He says it's two nervous people talking to each other. Isn't that great? It's one nervous person who knows Jesus talking to another person who's probably trying to figure out where are you going with this. But it's ordinary people like us who have experienced the grace of Christ talking openly and plainly and setting forth the truth plainly to people around them. It's talking about how, how the Lord has been so good and gracious and kind to us and how he's transformed our lives to another person. And when we think about it like that, well, that's something that I can do. That's something that you can do. That is something that we can do. I've been working my way through a book. It's called The Great Dechurching. It talks about how, uh, it's actually very, very fascinating, lots of statistics about how those who used to attend church no longer attend and what it would take to bring them back. And, and I'll just bottom line it for you. You know what? The number one thing for, for people who used to attend church, who no longer attend church, you know what the number one thing is to bring them back to church? They're asked by a friend. A friend reaches out to them and says, hey, I'd love for you to come to church. Would you come to church with me this week? Many times we are nervous. We might not know exactly what to say. 
in my own experience, and I'll tell you afterwards of, from a human level, some, some failures, when I forgot to say things, when I didn't say anything, when I chickened out, I got pages of that. Sometimes we are kind of nervous, but you know what? Those are God-given opportunities to allow the Spirit of God to work in us and through us. And you will know, you will see how the Lord shows up. He'll give you words. He'll give you courage. This, this is an area of growth for me. I think about our, uh, our neighbors, Mary and Joy. They're both in their 70s. They live right across the street from us. They're, they're great neighbors. Uh, I think they think the same of us. We've had lots of conversations with them. Typically, my conversations with either one of them either are on, in the street or in the driveway. Uh, they Obviously, they, they love our kids. We, we, they know we care about them. We're thankful for them. Uh, they obviously know I'm a pastor. I've invited them to church. They haven't come still at this point, but I'm going to keep inviting them. Prayed with, uh, with Mary several years ago. But I've just been convicted in my own life. That, again, there's, a, there's, a, there's relational ties there, so that's good. But I've been convicted. I, I want to press in more because I really do care about them. And we really do love them. And I want to care about their spiritual state. Uh, and, and, and so let's give an opportunity. So I'm, this is an area of growth. Pray for me, reaching my neighbors. And I'm thinking about just some of these questions I've, I've already asked them. But it can be, brothers and sisters, as, as simple as this, like, hey, you, you know I'm a Christian. What do you think that means? Or like, when you hear the word Christian, wh- what do you think about? Can I tell you about Jesus? Have you ever read the Bible? Do you understand what the gospel is? I mean, there's no shortage of questions. This is, I mean, the Lord, the Lord will use us if we're willing, and if we're willing to take that step. So there's simple questions that God really loves to bless. Let me close here with this. I opened with that story about Eric. Not all of us will be doing that. In fact, for most of us, the vast majority of our opportunities to speak to others about Jesus will will not be with sort of the one-offs, the Jehovah's Witness who ring the door and will probably never see them again. It is more with the people that we do know, the people that God has put in our lives, neighbors, friends, family members. It's within those relationships that we get the privilege of unleashing the grace of Christ on them. Why? Because we've experienced that same grace. So if you're not motivated to love and serve, speak of Christ to others, well, the first step is just to examine your own heart. The grace of the gospel that we've talked about, that has to land, that has to soften your heart first. But prayerfully discern where is that gospel disconnect? Where might that be in your own life and in your own heart? Is it fear? Is it apathy? Maybe it's just a busyness that doesn't even allow time for conversations in the driveway or around the water cooler. Where's that gospel of grace maybe being short-circuited in your own heart? These are some of the things that I'm thinking through and praying through. And it may be that a step forward then is that, Lord, I need to repent of my selfishness. And I need to repent of my self-centeredness. Pray that prayer. One of the things, church, that I know to be true in my life, I, I knew this 10 years ago. It's true then. It is true now. I make time for what I think is important. 
and I naturally tell people what I'm passionate about. And so do you. Nobody forces us to do these things. We all make time for what we think or what we deem is important, and we kind of naturally just talk about the things that we're passionate about. We don't have to force ourselves to do that. That's why I make time to try and watch Toronto Maple Leaf hockey games. And I'll probably watch the Super Bowl this afternoon. I make time for what I think is important. And I could talk to you until you are fast asleep about what the problem is with the Maple Leafs. We all make time for what we deem important, and we love to talk about the things that we are passionate about. And so the question for us this morning, humbly but boldly, is, okay, from day to day and week to week, what do you make time for, and what are you really passionate about? And that's not a question that we answer once a year, close the book and move on. You can't really discern that and dissect that when you're just waiting for the light to turn to green. We would, we would do well to ask that question often because the circumstances of our lives change, because the Lord moves us in different areas and seasons of life. And in all those changing seasons of life, we, we want to know, Lord, does, am I hearing from you? Is it in your word? Is, is my life aligned with you more and more? So maybe it is this morning that it's the reminder of how good and gracious Christ has been to you, that his grace is landing on your heart, softening your heart, and this week you will speak of your excellent Savior. I think for most of us, here, here's, a, here's a good step forward, I think a step of godly growth this week is to simply notice the people around you, to take note of them. Who's God put in your circle? Who's God put in your family? Who's God put in your extended family? Who's God put in your life? Because, again, the more that you notice the people around you, then you begin to actually care about them. You begin to talk to them. And as you begin to care about them, you begin to actually pray then about them. And, boy, when that happens, look out. You begin to pray. You begin to talk to them. You begin to care about their eternal destinies, their spiritual state. You know what it is to have real hope, and they don't have that hope. And so you're motivated out of love and grace to speak and serve and to be a blessing to those around you because what's happened in your life? Well, that gospel of grace, that's making its way. It's flowing into the cracks and crevices of your heart. And your heart is being softened and renewed. You begin to change. And it's that same grace of the gospel then that just flows out of us. And we speak then about the excellencies of our Savior because, brothers and sisters, we have an excellent Savior. We have an excellent Savior. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, indeed, if it were not for your greatness and your kindness to people like us, we would have no hope at all. Thank you for your kind grace unto salvation. Lord, I pray if there's, there's anyone here who, who doesn't know you in this way that today might be their day of salvation. God, I pray that they would not leave this place, that, that your spirit would move in their hearts, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would turn to you and be saved. Lord, for those of us, many in this room, who, who do know you, 
They're seeking to live as your disciples. Heavenly Father, we, we ask you for even more grace. We want more grace, Lord. We need more grace this week than last week. So forgive us, Lord, for not coming to you. Forgive us for our stubbornness. Forgive us for wanting to continue to be in control, Lord. We surrender. Help us to bend the knee willingly before you this day. And I pray that that same grace that saves, Lord, that you would continue your good work of sanctification, that we would live an uncommon life this day and this week. God, we acknowledge our great need for you and ask you for your help. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.